In the early 90s, I worked evenings as a newspaper editor, so my young daughter and I would spend the day together. I sometimes took her to what was then called a Mommy and Me playgroup. That's when I first noticed something was different. She would not play with the other children, but seemed to be simply playing alongside them instead. One day, she was on the swing set next to another child who tried to engage her in conversation. My daughter replied with the words, Starring Tony Danza! The other mom and I had a laugh, but I realized that my daughter was simply repeating the words from a video she had watched, rather than engaging with the other child. That's when I knew for sure that there was something about my daughter that needed a closer look. An autism spectrum diagnosis and a couple of decades later, my daughter and I have a laugh now and then whenever we find ourselves in awkward situations. I'll smile and say, starring Tony Danza, in a private joke that only she and I get. Traits of hers that seemed like an emergency when she was a child eventually just became a part of who she is and accepted. It's our family's own secret code. Much of what is written about autism concerns children, but children grow and each family establishes its own patterns of normal. By the time they are teenagers, routines are well established and patterns can develop for how they will cope as adults on the autism spectrum. Here's where an author like Leanne Kupferberg Carter comes in. In her book, Ketchup is My Favorite Vegetable, A Family Grows Up with Autism, published by Jessica Kingsley, she talks about raising her son, Mickey, who is autistic, through the decades into early childhood. Leanne is joining me now. Welcome to Indie Voices, Leanne. Thank you for having me. Well, first, did you write this book in part because there really is not a great deal of information out there for parents of young adults on the autism spectrum? Absolutely. That really was one of the primary motivations in writing this book. Um, when my son was diagnosed, autism adulthood felt like uncharted territory, mm-hmm. and I really needed a roadmap out there, and there just wasn't one. Um, he was at the front end of the autism wave back in the early 90s, so I certainly didn't know anybody who had a child like that. And what little I did know about autism came from movies like Rain Man, or I don't know if you remember, there was a TV show, Saint Elsewhere. That I do. Autistic. Oh, okay. I do remember, so, yes. And it was very moving and affecting, but that really was all I knew about it at the time. Um, when he was diagnosed, I was desperate to learn, and there just wasn't much information out there. Um, there was no social media. You couldn't even look up autism on Google because the Internet just barely existed. Right. So what I found myself doing was going to the library and to bookstores, and I think I was hungry to find a book with a title like What to Expect When Your Kid is Autistic, and of course nothing like that existed. Um, and the only books that I did find were all, they were filled with anecdotes and stories about miracle cures and benign stuff, you know, like the gluten and casein-free diet. Right, um, right. Or um, swimming with dolphins, which we didn't try because that was a little too easy for me. <laughs> I remember all that. My daughter uh, was born in the early 90s, and uh, she was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome before anybody had really heard of that before. Do you think a good deal of the debate over the causes of autism fails to take into account actual experiences from those who are on the autism spectrum? That's a complicated question, um, and I think parents would answer it very differently than people who are actually autistic themselves. I think um, if you're autistic, you're probably less concerned about causes and much more worried about services and accommodations. Mm-hmm. Um, because, as you know, for adults, there's such a lack of housing and employment and, and social opportunities for adults. Um, I think as for parents, I think parents are desperate to figure this out. I know I certainly was in the beginning. And in the absence of any real answers, you know, you're, you just keep seeking causes. Um, was it that glass of wine you drank before you knew you were pregnant? 
Uh, was it the antibiotic you took? Um, if your child had GI issues, could that be the cause? Um, I mean, I think speaking as a parent, there is so much guilt about why a child is autistic. Right. And, you know, in the absence of any real answers, you start looking around for reasons or something to blame. Um, and I don't want to wade into the vaccine water. Right, here. right, right. It's too polarizing. Right, exactly. What your book is about is, is uh, tracking it over time, over the course of two decades, and there comes a point where the cause is less of an issue than where do you go from here. And I don't view my daughter's autism as a sickness at all. It's, it's a series of personality traits, but she's also extremely high-functioning. Does it get more difficult to view it that way with a child who's more severely autistic? I think it does. Um, I also am a little leery of the word sickness. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think of autism more as a, just a different way of being. Um, as you said, personality traits, or you could call them quirks, or anything else, but I also think it's a disability. Um, I've read a lot of blog posts by self-advocates or, you know, the autistic adults who write very eloquently and persuasively that autism is an identity. Um, I mean, yes, they'll say it's a disability, but not a disease. Um, I kind of think it's similar to what we see with the deaf community. Autistic self-advocates feel that searching for a cure is demeaning and diminishing and futile. Um, They see autism as an inextricable part of their being. And if you want to get rid of the autism, it's like you're saying you want to get rid of them. Um, And I I kind of agree. Um, I think we just need to do a much better job of respecting everyone's diversity. Um, There's this really popular internet meme you may have seen. It says, um, autism is not a processing error. It's a different operating system. (laughs) That's good. I've never heard that before. But you know what? Let me just add, I think it's easy for me to say that because my son is fairly high-functioning, he's verbal, and he's funny. Um, He he won't be able to live independently, but he he does function pretty well, and I know many families who have it a lot harder, um, kids with really challenging behaviors. I'm not saying that my child doesn't have challenges, too, but they're manageable. Mm -hmm. So I, I think... If I were going to look for a cure for anything, it would really be for the medical issues that he has. But I certainly wouldn't want to change his very way of being because I love the person he is. Right, that's who he is. Well, your book is called Ketchup is My Favorite Vegetable. And is is there a story behind that book's title? Absolutely. (laughs) I get asked that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, When my publisher first accepted the book for publication, it had a different title. Um, it had the same subtitle, Family Grows Up with Autism, but the first title was like a little bit more literary, and my editor told me that it was way too generic and that I needed something a little more quirky that kind of really reflected who Mickey was. Mm-hmm. So she went through the manuscript, and she honed in on a chapter where Mickey's class was working um, on cooking skills, and when the teacher tried to get him to try shallots or Dijon mustard or something, Mickey announced, Ketchup's my favorite vegetable, um, which is unfortunately true. He won't touch any food that's green. So my first reaction to the title when she said it was that I hated it, and I I said something like, ketchup has no gravitas, um, because I I couldn't imagine telling people that was the title of my book with a straight face, (laughs) and it still kind of doesn't come trippingly off my tongue. But I also, you know, mentioned to her the whole thing about Ronald Reagan, the administration. Right, that's what I thought of. Yeah, I mean, that, that mm-hmm. was my first reaction, that mm-hmm. it was, you know, ketchup is the vegetable for school lunches. Um, but my editor is British, 
so that argument didn't really hold any water with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and we went back and forth for, uh, for a few days, I guess, with me coming up with more literary-sounding titles. And, okay, maybe they were a little pretentious, and maybe I was a little full of myself. But um, finally, I caved because I figured that she really knew a lot more about marketing a book than I did. And now I have to say she was absolutely right because people do remember the title. Mm-hmm. And as for ketchup, well, I hope it really is a vegetable because it's still the only <laughs> one he eats. Right. It brings to mind the everyday joy and quirkiness of, of living with uh, somebody on the uh, autism spectrum. So it's not all, all serious, but it's about living with some humor, too. A lot of your book is about how to handle the adolescent phase, which is hard enough on, on, on any family. Uh, but when should a parent begin to think about whether and how their autistic child should need care as an adult? I would say the earlier the better you can do that. Certainly by the time they enter high school at about the age of 14, if not earlier. And I say that because our school district didn't do it at the time, and we had to lobby really hard with them for transition services. They had just never had kids like this before. In high school, for us, it was really where we hit the crossroads. Um, We had to weigh, should we pursue an academic track or a life skills curriculum or a combination of the two? I think that the thing I never fully gave enough weight to when I was younger and I was kind of standing knee-deep in all of the issues was that he's going to be an adult for a lot longer than he was a child. In my area, there were a, there are a lot of schools and agencies that hold these transition fairs where you can go to workshops and lectures and, and meet with people from the agencies, and I really urge everyone to take advantage of that if it exists in their area and to get educated about this as soon as you can. Because transitioning to adult services, like we feel like it was like we fell, to, fell over a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, in school, you know, your child is still entitled to services thanks to IDEA, but once you graduate, you go into this world of adult social services, and it's, it's fragmented, and it's hard to navigate, and everything is underfunded. It's kind of like that, you know that old joke about two guys at the Borscht Belt Hotel, and they're complaining about the place, and one guy says, the food here is poison, and the other guy says, yes, and such small portions. <laughs> right. I feel. Um, exactly. Seriously, though, once yeah. you wait, it, you're not, it's not about entitlement anymore. It's about right. eligibility. Um, you're not guaranteed anything. And I'm not saying that there aren't some great adult programs out there, but they tend to be the exception, I think, not the rule. Well, I think you mentioned there are also real dangers. At one time, somebody came knocking on your door wondering if they should take your child away from you. Uh, yes, the, the whole guardianship question, that, that was extremely painful. Um, and I, don't, I assume other states do it the same way as New York, but basically we had to go to court to prove that we were good enough parents to uh, maintain guardianship over him. And it, it was a little unnerving to have someone come into my home and, and inspect I felt as if somebody had called Child Protective Services on us, which perhaps really isn't the case. I know the system is meant to protect everybody out there. They weren't singling us out, but it was very uncomfortable right. to scrutinize us right. that way. There's also, or Mickey also has a, has a brother, and uh, in any family, a, a sibling can be either a lifetime friend or a lifetime rival or a little bit of both. How did you manage to cultivate a closeness between Mickey and his brother? Well, I've said this before. I think that siblings are the great unsung heroes in the autism story. Those are the kids who have to grow up in therapists' waiting rooms, and they learn lessons in self-sacrifice pretty young. I think something that sibling closeness isn't something you can force. It's, it's a journey. And we did go through some really rough patches. Um, when the boys were little, they played together, and, and that was fine. Um, and Jonathan was 
fiercely protective of Mickey. Um, but then we reached the stage in his kind of tween and teenage years where he was just really embarrassed about his brother and mm-hmm. angry at us. And he was very critical about how we were parenting his brother. I mean, he'd say things like, you just have to be firm with him. You're not firm enough. Um, don't ask him. Tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. And I would say things back like, yeah, right, because that works so well when I tell you what to do. Um, but it really it made me feel defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also... There was a lot of truth to it in that Jonathan could get Mickey to do things that we couldn't, Um, you know, like basic things like, I don't know, like wash his face or chew with his mouth closed or finish his homework. You know, Mickey would mutter something like, shut up, Johnny, but then he'd listen, and even when he refused to listen to us. And I think that's because Mickey all along has idolized his brother. In fact, when Jonathan went off to college, Mickey acted bereft, and he said to me, my brother is gone. Are we divorced? Mm. And I, but I, I also think that Jonathan did so much maturing in college. Um, we found out after the fact that he was volunteering at a group home and he was prepared to work with a developmentally disabled young man. Um, he didn't tell us about it until mm. uh, much later. And um, over the summer, he had an internship at Autism Speaks. And then after he graduated, he worked for about a year and a half as the operation manager of the Autism Science Foundation. Um, and he's he still got a, a very busy, independent life, but the bonds between the boys are still really strong. Um, in fact, Jonathan said something really touching. Um, we were at a family wedding a few months ago, and he suddenly turned to me and said, someday when I get married, I want Mickey to be my best man. Hmm. That's nice. So, uh, you know, maybe growing up, uh, he was almost placed in in a kind of co-parenting role, or he felt he had to be. But he grew more comfortable with it, and uh, and it's made him more sensitive to the needs of others. I think so. I I do. And but as I said, it's been a process. It you know, it didn't happen overnight. Right. So so Mickey's twenty four years old now, and uh, what's what's his living situation, and how do you see the rest of his of his life going? Well. Um, he currently still lives at home with us. He attends a day habilitation program um, for several hours during the day. He still gets occupational therapy. Uh, he still has small fine motor issues and needs some work on his um, ADLs, um, activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still working on health and safety issues, but um, he's a happy, affectionate, really kind-hearted young man. Do you know that quote by Hotting Carter, who's not related? Uh, how does that go? Um, there are only two lasting bequests we can hope to give our kids. Um, one of them is roots, the other wings. I, th- I think about that a lot. I think that, that we've given him the roots, although I probably will always feel that I could have done more because I think that's just the nature of being a parent. Right. Even I, I couldn't tell you what more would have looked like. But I guess the question is, how do we find or give him wings? How do we help him to soar? I would say that in many ways we have the same hopes for him as we do for Jonathan. We want him to have loving friends, certainly good health, um, and work that is satisfying to him, whatever that should mean. But truthfully, we still don't know what his future is going to look like. I'm not sure he knows yet what he wants for himself. We... We don't know yet where he'll live um, or who will take care of him. There will always need to be somebody there because of the seizure situation. And, you know, and then that ultimate thing that every parent of a special need kid feels, like who will love him when we're gone? Mm-hmm. And I, I can't answer those questions yet, but um, I can say with 
absolute certainty um, and love is that what we want him to have is the richest and the fullest and healthiest and most independent life that he's capable of reaching. Um, and we'll do everything in our power to make that happen. Well, congratulations on a very well-written, engaging book that uh, conveys the, the full breadth of feeling in raising any family, but especially a family uh, with special needs. Uh, the book, again, is called Ketchup is My Favorite Vegetable, A Family Grows Up with Autism, published by Jessica Kingsley. And uh, thank you very much, Leanne. I appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye.